Hi everyone, my name is Johnny McCormick and you're listening to Spoke. This week on the show, I am joined by the wonderful Mel Wiggins. Where do you begin when you're trying to introduce someone as multi-talented as Mel? Well, I'm not entirely sure I'll do her justice, but I'm certainly going to give it a go. Mel is a creative, a community builder, an ethical living advocate, and an activist in issues of human trafficking. Mel coordinates a community for female creatives in Northern Ireland called Assembly, who host regular gatherings and get-togethers. Her work with Freedom Acts, a local charity that seeks to prevent human trafficking in Northern Ireland, started in 2011 when, along with a friend, Mel simply noticed a need in her local community. And that's just the type of person that Mel is, always giving of her gifts and talents to others. In recognition of her service, Mel was awarded in 2016 an MBE by the Queen for her work. In this conversation, Mel talks about her various pursuits and what it means to really live a life of intention. If you enjoy the show, it would mean the world to me if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening to this. It really does help. Now it's time to jump in. Enjoy. Mel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and I suppose what you want people to know about you? Well, I am Mel Wiggins. I am 34, I think. I'm pretty sure I'm 34. Um, Sometimes a bit blurry in those early 30s, um, mainly because I'm a mum and I have two kids who are almost seven and two. So I'm a family girl, married to Dave. Um, I'm also an activist and I run a small kind of charity project called Freedom Acts. Um, And I am a writer and a gatherer of women uh, with assembly gatherings, which is my kind of side business that I started about a year and a half ago. So that's me. Great. And I suppose that's a that's a really good place to jump in and I suppose explore a little bit about what we're really here to talk about. So the theme of our conversation, if you like, today is around this idea of intention or intentional living. Can you share a few thoughts on what that means to you? Hmm. I guess that whole concept is, well, it's pretty on vogue at the minute, isn't it? That whole idea of more kind of intentional thoughtful living which is absolutely great that more of that kind of thinking is is going mainstream for me it's very much about connecting all the different areas of um of my passions and my values and my life and trying to kind of see a streamline in those things so for me my work with freedom acts is largely looking at issues of exploitation and injustice towards people um in the world but really just more locally in my own community so um for me that issue really connects to kind of bigger issues of where do i see exploitation happening in the world that i can maybe be a contributor to in terms of how i consume and what i buy and what i do and how i think and how i move in the world um and i guess that kind of influences a lot of the a lot of the decisions that I make in my home, a lot of the decisions I make in my business and 
in the work that I do as well. So um, that kind of idea of intentional living to me is about kind of marrying up my values in my everyday, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's really good, Mel. Um, I suppose so. One thing I want to come back to is Freedom Act, and I want to hear a little bit more about sort of the the really great work that you're doing with them. But one thing that you said really um, stuck out to me there, and that's this idea of intentional living being really about how you live your day to day life. So how you go about consuming products or choosing what to purchase. And I suppose I'd like to hear a little bit a little bit more about that because I think it's something certainly that I'm interested in or certainly something that I've tried to consider more and more but it's like mm. I don't know it's it's just really really hard it's hard because mm. there's so much choice out there and it's not always it, it's it's you know those values aren't always front of mind necessarily whenever I come to make a purchase or you sort of sometimes go for the quick app jump on ASOS get what you can when when you can um so I suppose it's yeah. a, a little bit of that instant gratification so how do you mm. go about I suppose checking yourself before you make some of those decisions well, for me, it's been a hugely slow process. It's not like, you know, I, I I heard how people were being exploited in cocoa farms in the Ivory Coast, and I decided to never eat chocolate that was, mm. you know, produced by companies who use children to farm cocoa beans. You know, like, it's not like one day I woke up and made that decision. It's a, a slow process. So I think for me... Um, some of the ways that I check myself is just having like an incessant curiosity about that stuff. Um, I'm, I kind of really intentionally try to learn about what, um, what happens in terms of the processes of how things get to our homes and to our shops and to our, um, to the places where we consume. Um, and, and kind of learning, I think, is often half the battle that that is um, that's going on with consumerism. And um, also, I think it's about yeah, that whole idea of slowing things down um, and not being so focused on thinking that you need something and then going ahead and just getting it, um, but really taking time and sitting on those decisions. Um, is there, you know, is there something else that I could use in place of this? Do I really, really need this? So um, I think sometimes people can get uh, really caught up in having to like repurchase all of these more ethical things um, or buying more eco-friendly stuff. Um, but actually it's it's about kind of even just looking at that that side of things of do I even need, is there is there anything that I really need to get? Um, rather than just kind of impulsively, even eco-friendly buying stuff mm. as well, which is like kind of a that kind of double threat to the whole issue. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's it is a really vast and deep subject that you could just feel completely overwhelmed with. And that's, you know, I write about it a lot. I write about kind of ethical living a lot on my blog and I get asked to, t to talk to groups about those kinds of things. And like I was at a group recently doing a talk about it and um, the Q&A kind of time got really detailed. Like people were really worried about, you know, asking questions about 
you know, if I go to Tesco and I buy these green beans um, and they're produced in Egypt, that's a country that persecutes Christians. Should I not? And I'm, <laughs> I'm going, you know, just relax a little bit into it. It doesn't need to, you don't need to overcomplicate some of these decisions. Um, and maybe it's just about taking one focus, one thing that you could really be curious about and slow down with. Um, and not try to kind of do the whole hog. Because I think if you try to override every decision in a more thoughtful or intentional way, you'll end up doing nothing because it's really overwhelming, like you said. But maybe it's about taking one one particular thing for this year and really, really looking at it. So I spent, you know, a couple of years really looking at fashion, really looking at the the clothing industry and what it does and how it operates and how it contributes to so much damage in the world, both to people and the planet. Um, so that's one that I feel like I've really, I've really got a handle on now, but that's been a long process. Um, fair trade and kind of the kind of food side of things I've really been looking into. And then this year in the last kind of 18 months, I've been really looking at waste. Um, Cause I feel like that's the one that I have the least handle on and I really want to, kind of improve and learn more about so kind of how can we how can we reduce our our kind of reliance on plastic and on packaging and the waste with food and uh, stuff that is in our home especially it's kind of where I'm at at the minute yep yeah yeah I think that's really great so I suppose you're what it sounds like is your top tip is sort of pick one area, be it fashion, household products, um, waste or garbage disposal, something something like that, and really commit to doing that well before trying to get overwhelmed with fixing everything or every, every injustice. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's, that's only ever going to make you feel overwhelmed. And often when you feel overwhelmed, you do nothing and then you feel really shamed because you've done nothing and you feel guilty and then the cycle kind of continues um, and you're just bound up by obligation and guilt and that's never a really good conduit for making a real change and making a difference. Guilt and shame really never produces anything mm. um, long-lasting, you know. Yeah, and it, you, you've mentioned a little bit, Mel, about um, Freedom Act's already can you say a little bit more about what freedom acts is where it came from what your role is so yeah so about uh oh almost seven years ago now um well i guess it started further back than that my interest in in the issue of trafficking kind of was sparked by a few different events i was living in london at the time and i was working for oasis trust um, and I was working in their schools team. And at the same time as I was working in that team, another kind of team was forming in the same office. And that was um, a small team uh, that was launching a campaign around human trafficking called Stop the Traffic. Um, and I was just really fascinated by the work they were doing. So I just was kind of learning a lot from them and listening to kind of how they were uh, talking about the issue. And it piqued my interest. Um and I helped them a little bit with some of their campaigns and roadshows and stuff. Um, and then I went to work at a homeless shelter in uh, the East End of London, where I was, because I was a youth worker, I was responsible for looking after the teenage girls in the shelter. 
Um, and most of those girls were African girls who had been trafficked and left kind of on the street in London. Um, and so I had my eyes open to kind of the realities of that stuff then after hearing about it with Stop the Traffic, kind of co- had come face to face with it. Um, and then I moved back to Northern Ireland for the love of a Northern Irish boy. And um, I was going to a church and met a girl there who also um, was really passionate about the issue and her and I just kind of really connected. Um, her name's Laura Wiley and Laura and I just kind of decided to do our own bit of kind of voluntary research into the issue locally to kind of see if maybe there were issues that, um, you know, if it was happening in London, is there potential that it was happening in Northern Ireland? Um, and so we got really curious and really nosy and really kind of pushed into kind of organizations that we thought might have been encountering vulnerable, at risk or exploited people. And quickly we realized that, yeah, there were a lot of agencies that were telling us that they had encountered people who had been trafficked here, that they had concerns that there was all kinds of other stuff going on. Um, So Laura and I formed a voluntary group and we led that voluntary group of um, there was probably like 20 of us that were part of that for a couple of years um, under the kind of banner of Stop the Traffic as a local expression of that. Um, and we just did loads of awareness campaigns, loads of um, public events uh, where we just gave out information and helped people to understand the signs. We worked with our local police. We set up a local steering group of police and health professionals and women's aid and people who um, had a bit of a stake in the issue locally that we had learned from. And uh, and eventually Laura and I were being called to kind of go and talk to government about what we were finding out and stuff like that. And we're majorly over our heads, like completely out of our depth. Um, we were just kind of two girls who were really interested and became kind of leaders in this. And, um, and it was just a really... It was a really exciting time because there was a lot of movement on the ground, a lot of kind of political movement around the issue um, and a lot of kind of community movement. There were other groups like ours that were kind of springing up across Northern Ireland to do bits in their own community as well of awareness. Um, And then eventually just, you know, this was what Laura and I were doing on our lunch breaks from our own jobs and, and the margins of our life. Um, but we were really, really fired up about it. Um, and eventually we have been told that uh, Comic Relief was looking for projects that were focusing on this in Northern Ireland and that we should, we were encouraged to apply for funding for it. So we uh, approached a local charity um, that works with migrant people in our local community called Community Intercultural Programme. We approached them and just said, you know, this is the work we're doing. We really feel like it fits in well with your organization. Would you be interested in applying some, plan for some funding for us to work for you and do this as part of your work? Mm-hmm. And thankfully, uh, they were up for it and they applied for it. And uh, Freedom Acts kind of developed out of that, that kind of first round of comic relief funding. So Laura and I were funded for three years to begin to develop the work more. Um, so we, we left our jobs and became employed to do that work um, part-time. Um, and that was six years ago. And we've kind of continued to be funded with Comic Relief to do that. And and that work kind of has sh- kind of really shifted and evolved over the six years from 
doing loads of public awareness and going and talking to everybody and their granny about this to um, doing a lot of training with professionals um, and also just really finding out what the issue looks like here locally and um, obviously because the nature of trafficking and its organised crime, it changes all the time so we have had to be very flexible with how we um approach this uh, issue and how we tackle it um, and so a lot of our work is around empowering migrant workers to understand their rights and access the support they need so that they can protect themselves and their families from being exploited um, and sometimes working with people who have been victims of trafficking to help them kind of integrate back into the community and that kind of thing so that's pretty wonderful. Great. Um, that's really, really interesting, Mel. Um, I, I suppose one thing that comes to mind is that most people probably don't think of this issue of trafficking or modern slavery on like a day-to-day basis or really know the sort of the scale of the issue or the scale of the problem. It's certainly something that I don't really have a, a great handle of being in Northern Ireland. You know, I'm not in, I'm not entirely sure as to how big a problem it is. And I think probably some of that is just the busyness of your own life. So you don't really think about these things until you're really either confronted with the issue personally or you're talking to someone who is passionate about the issue. So I'm just wondering, are you able to, I, I suppose, give us a little bit of insight as to how big a problem that is or what that problem looks like on a, on a really human level? Like what are some of the situations that you have had to, had to deal with or you've had to encounter? Well, I mean, I can tell you facts and figures. I can tell you statistics, um, but often they just don't speak to the scale because it's such a hidden crime. And it's something that, you know, if I was to tell you the numbers, it mightn't sound, you know, that the police kind of record, I suppose. Um, That really only just gives you a flavour of people who have either come forward or have cooperated with police in order to kind of receive the support of agencies that look after victims um and that's just not reflective of the issue um obviously northern ireland has a really interesting landscape in terms of an open border and access to the mainland very easily um and lots of free movement so um we're quite we're quite a centre point for people being moved around the UK and in and out of Europe as well. Um, And we have such a growing migrant population here. And there's always, what we've noticed in terms of trends is that there's always a new vulnerable community that has come into Northern Ireland. So um, maybe 10 years ago, it was um, the Polish or Lithuanians who were coming in, who were kind of the unskilled workers who were taking kind of low-paid, low-skilled jobs. Um, but the Polish and the Lithuanian communities have really settled well in Northern Ireland, and it's uh, the newer, more vulnerable communities that are coming in now are the Romanians and Bulgarians, um, and they're the ones that are being filtered in to, you know, the kind of, um, yeah, into agriculture and food production industries where, um, they don't need good English language skills, and those kind of those kind of things make them vulnerable to um, people controlling their movement, controlling their finances, controlling their um, their schedules, their movements, etc. Um, I think when people 
think about human trafficking, um, they maybe automatically think about the sex industry and prostitution um, and, and sexual exploitation. And while that absolutely still happens in Northern Ireland and has done, um, we Freedom Acts especially is more focused on the labour exploitation side of things because particularly where we're based here in County Armagh, um, it's just a huge industry um, and we see major, major issues within it of people who are recruited by people from their own home country um, brought to Northern Ireland with these, the promise of, of a good paying job um, and you know, unlimited hours of work that they can, you know, save money and send back home, uh, which is usually the reason why people come here to work uh, is to to send money home and to provide for their families or whatever. Um, and often, you know, the reality is so very different. Um, and clients that we have encountered and supported um, have have come here. Have maybe they have got jobs, but those jobs are and not what they thought they were going to be. And um, there's been huge elements of control involved in the work that they've been doing. So um, they've maybe been registered for two or three different jobs and then forced to work, you know, round the clock, basically. Um, One of the biggest cases in Northern Ireland was in 2015, where there was about, um, I think there was like almost 20 Romanians that were recovered from property here in Portadown. Um, between Portadown and Lurgan, there was a couple of different big cases, but um, these individuals had been recruited by an illegal gangmaster um, and they were put in kind of multiple occupancy accommodation um, and then they were registered for several jobs. Now, all legitimately, and so that's where it gets tricky, is that they're registered with several different places of employment, completely legit, so they have national insurance numbers, they've given bank account details, um, but the tricky bit is that, you know, one employer doesn't know that when they leave that place, they're picked up in a van and brought to another place to go and work, um, and they're threatened and abused and malnourished and sleep-deprived, Um all the while the money is going into maybe one or two bank accounts um, of the people who are controlling them. So that's kind of the that's kind of the real life picture of of some of the cases that we've that we've come across that have happened here, literally minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Mm, yeah, that's um really, really scary. I suppose I suppose one thing that, that comes to mind, Mel, is you know, it's really, really heartbreaking to hear things like that how do you um yeah I suppose how do you live your your life in um a normal state or how do you just not be completely overwhelmed by some of this stuff all the time knowing that it is happening you know so close to home or it is such a systemic issue that sits beneath the surface and actually a lot of people don't know the stories of these people to to you know to a lot of people who are going about their business in society. It's maybe just another face that they see that are providing them services or are doing odd jobs for them. How do you live your life in a way that's just not completely overwhelmed by this issue? Like, how do you do normal things, I suppose? Well, I guess because I feel like I'm invested in it, that I can't, that the choice to be overwhelmed is just not an option for me. I'm, I'm, I turn my overwhelm into action. 
Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's about um, it's about th- those everyday choices that I talked about earlier, uh, knowing that those everyday choices of how to, you know, live more in a more thoughtful way actually impact the bigger picture as well. So it's that stuff. But then it's also, you know, realizing that I have boundaries in my in my life as well, that I can't, like I'm a mum, so when I come home, um, I have to kind of find a way to switch off uh, from work stuff and from the kind of the heaviness of some of that. Um, and it's, it's usually not that hard because kids kind of are really good at distracting you from that stuff and you don't really have a choice to move into a different headspace. Um, but also... It's it is turning that overwhelm into action and and being very determined that that's that 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 message needs to be heard and that people need to know and um and and being very determined that those stories are are not stories that we want to see happen again um and so you know we 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 think very strategically about how we can disrupt things and how we can shake things up a little bit and how we can be creative because traffickers and exploiters controllers they're very creative in their industry about how they organize this crime and how they use people and so we need to be creative as well so i guess there's there's some of that as well yeah is there any sort of one story mel that you would be able to share to really bring this to life for people like what that what that actually looks like so you, you've mentioned a little bit about the sort of things that these people might be doing in society and you've mentioned a little bit about how they got here is there anything else that you can share on that yeah i mean there's been a couple of really significant stories some that have ended badly that um have been really heartbreaking and some that have had a really hopeful ending one guy um came to us after he had been recovered from a a situation of forced labor where he was kept kind of in an outhouse actually for a few months and forced to work. And he was in his late fifties and had worked his whole life uh, for a a trucking company in his home country in Romania um, and had just taken this job offer in Northern Ireland. um, And obviously it just wasn't what it, what it, was supposed to be and he was kind of caught and trapped in this situation he was recovered he actually him and a couple of others presented to Lurgan police station and said that their passports had been taken um, and police at Lurgan police station had been trained by freedom acts to identify signs and that was something that they kind of picked up on so it was kind of for us that was a real significant moment of seeing our work work you know and um they called, they immediately recognized that this was, there was something going on and they called the modern slavery unit of the police down um, and those people were recovered. This man then went into the government system of support and was cared for um, and put up in housing and looked after by Migrant Help, the organization that supports male victims here in Northern Ireland. And um, then once his, once his kind of, you get, you get kind of like a 45 day reflection period um and often that is extended longer because they have the you know the systems have to make decisions about your status if you're not from here and all that kind of immigration issues and all that kind of stuff um so he was kind of exiting that service and was being moved 
into accommodation locally and migrant help contacted us and said you know would you look out for this guy um we're going to have him come down to your office so he has some familiar faces that that kind of feels safe to him so he came to our office and we spent a bit of time with him kind of making doctor's appointments and arranging for him to get clothing because he was going to start a job working at a local factory they had get, they had offered him a job working there um, and he needed some you know hard boots and stuff like that so we had r- rounded up some things for him and all the rest of it um and he was to start work we had met him on i think it was maybe like a tuesday and then on the wednesday he was starting his new job and on the wednesday morning um i gathered all the stuff together and um, then I got a call from Migrant Help to give me this devastating news that this man had actually died on his first day at work. He had taken a massive heart attack on the factory floor and died. Um, and uh, it really shook me to the core because, um, you know, like the police officer that had to go to the factory because it was this kind of, I can't remember what the term they use is, but this kind of, like a a sudden death or whatever so police have to be involved in that Um, and he said he went to the locker and he found my my business card it was the only thing that was in his pocket and he lifted the business card out and just kind of smiled to himself because this this was a police officer that we worked with for five years on this issue and he and it was just, you know, it was quite significant that and he, the police officer actually called me personally to tell me as well. I had already knew that he had passed away, but he called me personally because he found my business card in his pocket. Um, and this guy literally had nothing to his name and his family in Romania were really poor. Um, I think he had one sister who was dying of cancer and she wasn't able to afford to repatriate his body to give him a a burial in his home country so it was left in the hands of the council and so the council um were going to have just kind of a just kind of bury him in an unmarked grave and we kind of were able to intervene a little bit and get involved and we were able to actually have a bit of a funeral for him so and it was just the saddest as you can imagine the saddest day it was us some of our some of our friends that also work in supporting victims and um, staff from migrant help and police officers and um angus wilson who runs wilson's potatoes um the, the factory where he died his his boss came to the funeral as well his boss who was his boss for like two hours you know and we were able to arrange for a romanian speaker to come and read the bible and pray or whatever and um and he's buried in Portadown in a cemetery where nobody knows him. We're in a country where he was treated so badly and um and it was just it was really it was a real kind of pivotal moment, his story, to make sure that, that just that wasn't a story that would ever happen again. Um and yeah, it was devastating but and then we have, there's other, you know, there's other stories of really hopeful things where there was, you know, in, in the summertime, um, we had a, a client come in, a, a lady again in her 50s, uh, who had taken a job from Latvia. Um, she was recruited in Latvia to come over and work in a mushroom farm here. 
and had been um, really badly treated by her employers and really controlled and manipulated and abused. Um, and because her accommodation was tied up in her employment, um, when she she had an accident at work and ended up in hospital, and because she was away from her job, they sacked her. And uh, she then was told that she didn't have anywhere to live either because she wasn't employed there anymore. Uh, and she literally had nowhere to go, like literally nowhere she was sleeping on somebody's sofa but that person needed to have her gone like they just didn't have space for her anymore and we made all kinds of phone calls and I mean round in circles to try and find somewhere that you can't get into a homeless shelter in Northern Ireland unless you have receipt of benefits this lady didn't have she hadn't worked for long enough and um to receive any income-based uh benefits and so she literally was completely destitute. And I remember the conversation I had with Citizens Advice, who were really brilliant. But I said to them, you know, we're hitting dead ends here with this. I don't know what to do. And she said, Mel, I'm, I'm just so sorry, but sometimes people just fall through the cracks. And I just I just was not, it was not okay. Just is not, it's not okay that people fall through the cracks. It just isn't. Um, and so we actually contacted a safe house, which is it's the only kind of non-government supported um, safe house for victims in Northern Ireland. Um, and it's run by a Christian charity. And um, and they, they were more than happy to take her in. And she's been living there for the last kind of six months or more and she's taking her employers up to tribunal to get compensation and justice really for what she endured. She is uh, learning English. She volunteers three days a week and um, she's working on getting, she's almost at the stage now where she's going to be able to get um, housing for herself as well. So, you know, that to us, for us, that is a redemptive story. That's a really amazing story of, um, of being able to offer someone the opportunity to build resilience and and kind of empower them that they can change their situation and there is hope for them. So yeah, there's 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 stories on both sides of that. Yeah, and two two completely opposite stories in in some senses, Mel. And I think that second one really, I think is actually almost in the spirit of what we're talking about this idea of intention you know that's that that person's life has changed because of the intention to do something about it so get out of a situation that's bad and then try and try and make a new life for yourself you know that's really that's that's really really inspiring um thanks for sharing a little bit about freedom acts and the work that you're doing there mel i suppose one thing that comes to mind and you've mentioned a few times you know that you've got a couple of couple of young kids how do you begin to talk about this idea of intention, whether it be your sort of your work with Freedom Acts or how you go about living your life and making those choices that you talked about at the start of the podcast, how do you begin to bring up those subjects with kids? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, obviously, my kids are pretty young. Well, Levi's almost seven and eight is two. So, um, you know, he knows he knows what I do. Um, in kind of kid terms you know it's not I don't think that there's 
I think that there's definitely age appropriateness that you have to consider when it comes to talking about big issues with kids. Um, so to not overwhelm them or make them unnecessarily sad. Um, so he knows that that mum helps people who are being treated badly. Um, and he's aware of kind of and he and he comes along to stuff. And I think sometimes that is uh, is kind of what our our kind of biggest goals are is to kind of expose him appropriately to important things and involve him in them. So I don't I would never hide my work away from him. Um and, you know, we bring him to lots of different stuff that that is important to us. You know, there's been there's been a lot of controversy in our area at the minute because um there's a, a beautiful kind of nature reserve area around our the lakes in Craigavon and the council kind of sneakily passed plans to build the new uh, regional college on some of the land. Um, and it's it's been, and we use that space all the time as a family outside and, um, and it's beautiful. And so there's been a bit of a groundswell of protest and objection to that. And so we've joined in a couple of protests and brought Levi with us and explained that. And he's made banners um, about save the lakes and all that kind of stuff um, because I don't want him to feel like he has to wait until he's a grown-up to contribute to some of this stuff uh, but that he absolutely can have a voice uh, in these issues now so yeah so it's about age appropriateness um, I think for some of that stuff but also involving them in stuff that actually affects them and their future um, yeah so there's that and then normalizing I think sometimes so normalizing the consumer side of of life uh, as in normalizing the side of consumerism that we want to portray um, so not being excessive when it comes to birthdays and Christmases and things like that and being really clear with our family and friends about that uh, about how we want to kind of raise Levi and Ada to you know to be to be mindful of consumption and where their stuff comes from um yeah and we challenge we challenge lots of things um because obviously kids are really spongy and they hear things and uh will repeat things maybe that they've heard at school or at football or whatever and we we definitely take opportunities to dive into some of those issues around gender equality and um all of that kind of thing and I can I can already see the effects of those conversations because they've started so early especially with Levi around what girls can do and what boys can do and um yeah and and also just modeling a lot of a lot of this stuff so it's important for us that he sees us modeling and we don't get it right you know, like a lot of the percent of the time. Um, but I think that that's a huge, a huge way that you can kind of instill family, the values of your family and your kids is just by walking the talk, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
if it's okay, we're going to change tack a little bit and hear, um, suppose, a little bit behind the scenes of the life of Mel Wiggins and hear a little bit more about you personally. And I'm just wondering, Mel, um, if you can share with us who is the person that's had the biggest impact on your life and mm. what what that impact was and why it was so um, so important to you. I mean, I am probably going to be super cliche, but my parents, definitely, I know, Maybe that it's just not the case for lots of people, but definitely for me, you know, I grew up in a family. My dad was a social worker, a probation officer, um, and a pastor latterly. Um, and my mum also involved with community work and worked a lot with uh, drug and alcohol addiction and stuff like that. And I like we just grew up in a house where it was super normal to have people in our home that needed a safe place to be or that needed a little bit of love. And so for me, that has always been a huge influence that our home is an open is an open door to those kind of people that need a bit of TLC or just need some safety or whatever. Um, so, and also like my parents came from, kind of tough childhoods you know they both come from big families both from broken families where there was lots of heartache and lots of difficulty and they emerged in a really healthy way from those families um and kind of defied a lot of the odds uh, especially in like culture today of you know if you were to put out on paper the stuff that their families went through um you know they probably should end up in jail or like you know dead or something you know and it they really emerged as amazing amazing examples of grace amazing examples of compassion um and of resilience and yeah i've just they have been probably my greatest influences for sure wow yeah 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 what's the it, it may or may not be from your parents, but what's the best piece of advice that you have received that you might be able to share with other people, Mel? Best piece of advice. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it's advice, but one of the kind of quotes that I love and feel like is a bit of a mantra for me is from Donald Miller's first book called Blue Like Jazz. Have you read that? Yeah, I have. Love Donald Miller. I think he's a great, uh, great author. Yeah. So I read that book years ago and there was a line that always kind of stood out to me and has become really important. And it says, um, what you believe isn't what you say you believe. What you believe is what you do. So I'll say that again. What you believe isn't what you say you believe. What you believe is what you do. So it might be advice. I don't know if it's advice, but it definitely um, is a really, it's a really strong kind of theme for me. Is that is that whole idea of it's okay to say that you're really into this thing or that you really believe in that thing, um, but if if your life doesn't show that, then maybe you don't believe it at all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's clear, Mel, from our conversation that there's um, 
couple of very specific things that you're super, super passionate about, so that you're super invested in and um, devote a lot of your time, energy, and I suppose a lot of your life to. Is there anything that you passionately believe yourself, so something that you're fully committed to, believe it 100% without reservation, that you occasionally have a hard time convincing others of? Or is there something that you passionately believe that you wish other people believed too? Hmm. I don't know. I I would rather um oh. Sorry, I don't know if that somebody calling me. Um Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have if there's anything that I really ever want to try and convince people of. I'm a bit wary of that. I'm a bit wary of like having to convince anybody. Um but I definitely think that your life speaks. Um, and that people people watch what you do and that that informs them more than maybe what you say and or mm. maybe you maybe what you preach or maybe what you um post on Facebook, you know? Mm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So this this idea of your life speaking then, um suppose one thing I'm interested in is what's one thing that you're most proud of? So if someone was to, you know, speak about your life or speak speak perhaps about you to someone else what's the one thing that you want them to say or what's the what's sort of the biggest success you've had to date that you're, you're most proud of I think I'm just I'm I'm really proud that I I don't and I don't know if it's just naivety but I'm proud that I just will give things a go um it makes you know I'm a mom, and sometimes you know I think I had a real fear when I became a mom that I would lose something of my desires of of my own passions, etc. But with that, then came a real determination to, um, yeah, just to to really make space for the things that I enjoy and the things that really drive and make me come alive and I think I'm really proud that I've given that a go and even if I don't get the balance of that right or I don't you know or I feel like I'm thriving in one area and I'm really sucking in another um I'm I think I'm proud that I can be a little bit more gentle with myself these days I think that that's what I'm most proud of is that I'm not as hard on myself about about giving things a go and maybe it not working out or not getting the balance right because I'm just proud that I've had a go. Yeah. Is that something that you've had to learn? Like, does that come naturally to you or is that something that you've no. had to really focus? No. <laughs> that doesn't come naturally to me. I like to do things really well. Um, and so, and also I'm really like a big, a big fan of balance and, all of you know and so but there's just no such thing I just don't I just don't believe in it um I also don't believe in confidence this is a new thing do you want to hear about that yeah absolutely I don't believe in confidence anymore I actually think it's a myth so what do you what do you mean by that 
I think that the, it, like people hold confidence up as this holy grail. Like when I get enough confidence to do something, then I'll do it. When I feel confident to X, Y, or Z, I will do it. Um, but I think that that's bull. I just think that there's no such thing as confidence. You just, you never reach that destination. There will always be something to tip you a little bit. And I think it's really, really important and really freeing, I think. And maybe maybe for men too, but especially for women, that we are given permission to do things scared. That we just have to kind of level the playing field and understand that there's not a certain amount of special people who have confidence that get things done. Actually, most of us are just having a go scared. Yep, I think that's really, really powerful. So is there anything then, Mel, that you've been dreaming of doing but you haven't done yet my plate is pretty full (laughs) (laughs) not necessarily I think um I feel like I'm at a really good capacity in my life at the minute um I feel really fulfilled in lots of different areas and it's definitely in my nature to want to add to that it really is. And so when that question is posed to me, my brain starts, oh, what can we do? What can I do? Can I write a book? Can I do this? Can I start something else? Can I, you know, I love to start and I love to innovate and plan and do things. I'm an activator in nature. Um, but actually, <laughs> one of the things that I am working hard on is capacity and quality and all of that kind of stuff. Really, really trying to um to know my own boundaries and not in a restrictive way but in a way that really makes me feel more free if that makes sense yeah i think that's i think that's really great so let's say mel we were to sit down in one or two years time and uh, have this sort of chat again is there anything that you would want to be true then that isn't true now or is there anything that you would have wanted to have improved on done differently or anything that you're really going to be focusing on in the next couple of years? I mean, so much can change in, in that time, can't it? Like, I just feel like years are, are fleeting. So it's, it's so hard to think about one or two years time, but I really, I think just as a, as a foundation, I guess in two years time, I would love to be able to say that I'm still feeling like what I'm doing is very true to what I believe and that I'm continually making decisions based on my truest self and my values and what I really believe to be, to be true. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's re- that's, you know, it's great ambition. I think it's really, really difficult. Um, especially when you are busy and you've got the, you know, the, the new shiny thing in the corner that you maybe demands a bit of attention or you want to focus on. And um, yeah, I think that's a really great, great aspiration or ambition. Um, so I suppose we're coming in to, to land now. We're coming in to finishing up, Mel. So I'm just wondering if we can go completely lighthearted now. So we've talked about some... Sure some pretty serious stuff tonight um <laughs> and we'll just end with a little bit of a quick fire round so yeah, this is this it. is sort of the the lighter side of mail let's if, lighten if like. it up <laughs> so first question do you prefer reading or watching telly johnny i would love to say that i prefer reading and maybe i do 
maybe I do prefer reading, but I default to the telly. And by telly, I mean like binge watching on Netflix, essentially. That is, that's it. Great. So what's your go-to Netflix? You want to switch off, not have to think too hard. What's the thing that you throw on Netflix? Mm, I have been, well I, well, I completely devoured the full first season of Queer Eye. I don't know if you've watched that. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, it was so heartfelt and beautiful and I did not have a dry eye all week. Um, so I love that. Um, I also love Grey's Anatomy. Grey's is my family. I have been with Grey's from the beginning and when it ends, I will stalk every single actor on Instagram. <laughs> Yeah, my wife will uh, will join you in that, I think. Um, I frequently will walk into the house after maybe coming home from a day at work or whatever, and uh, she'll be sitting on the sofa crying her eyes out at the latest episode of Grey's Anatomy. Absolutely. Oh, it's just, I mean, there's, we've been through a lot together. <laughs> Absolutely. So Mel, <laughs> what is your most annoying habit? You'd have to ask Dave that. Um <laughs> He will give you a list as long as his arm. Um, my most annoying habit. Um, oh my goodness! I honestly, you have to ask. You have to ask Dave. I am quite. I can be really annoying. Um, I, I'm pretty reactive. I think I just jump into things. That can, and I guess I'm saying that in a that annoys my husband, but maybe isn't my most annoying habit to anyone else. Um. I'm pretty reactive. Um, I forget to tell him when I'm doing stuff. We have a Google Calendar, but, I mean, we may as well not have that. <laughs> um, my most annoying habit. I'm, I mean... Just to let you know, I am going to reach out and speak to Dave about it, and uh, we'll, get, we'll, get the, we'll get the inside scoop on how much you pick your nose or how much you're snoring <laughs> at night. Yeah, I can um, pick my skin on my feet. Yeah, I, do that sometimes. I, I love like I love scabs and like picking things that's gross isn't it you can edit that out to- totally delightful um what does your morning routine look like Mel if you have one. well my morning routine is largely dictated by tiny humans um so it usually starts with some sort of bed invasion um our in our house like you're not guaranteed to wake up in the same bed that you went to sleep in. So someone will come in and I will be woken up. I'll usually hand, it's usually like a crazy early time in the morning and I'll usually hand whatever child it is, my phone to watch Netflix for a bit while I try and like catch some more sleep. Um, not ashamed to say that. I reckon that like 97% of parents do that. Um, and then once I absolutely have to get up because there are lunches to be made and school uniforms to be put on and breakfast to, um, be refused, um, I make my way down to the kitchen with the kids and Dave and we are pretty, we're a pretty tight ship in the morning. To be honest, we have our rules. Like I put the kettle on, I put the porridge on, Dave makes the lunch I get Levi dressed, the kids sit and eat their breakfast, I have a cup of tea, Dave usually takes Levi to school and I'm with the baby until childcare arrives or whatever and then I get ready and go to work. That's um, 
that's a fairly normal routine, I think. And that's it's exactly actually what I wanted to hear. I think um you know, you read a lot about morning routines or whatever online and it's like Yes, I, I journal. I journal for forty five minutes. <laughs> I do yep. a quick meditation, a forty five minute yoga session. Yeah. Yep. Then take a bike ride down the canal. And I'm back just in time for the toast popping up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who who are these yeah. people? Who are they? Um, so, Mel, it's been absolutely awesome talking to you this evening. Really, really insightful. I want to thank you for giving up so much of your time and being so generous with it. What is, Pleasure. what's the best way that people can find out a bit more about the sort of subjects we've been talking about tonight? So if someone's really interested in making a change to how they consume fashion, or if someone wants to find out more about Freedom Acts, or just if someone wants to find out a little bit more about Mel Wiggins, what's the best way for them to do do all of that? This is the time to plug how people can hear more and get in contact with you. Yeah, so I have a blog. My Well, my website it, um, will kind of tell you everything. So you'll find my blog on there um, and you'll find stuff about assembly gatherings, which we haven't really talked about, but um, that's the kind of creative, my side business that I run with creative women in Northern Ireland, with events and gatherings. Um, and that's all on my website. So there's stuff on there about lots of posts about ethical fashion and um, ethical living or more thoughtful living. I have a free resource on there called Simpler Start, which looks at kind of simplifying your possessions and your priorities and your perspectives um, and I'm also going to be launching my online course again which I ran for the first time last year which is all about kind of eco-family living so more for families who want to kind of get started in this stuff and that's going to be running again um, in the next couple of months um, so all that stuff's on there and that's melwiggins.com and then for Freedom Acts, it's freedomacts.co.uk and you can watch all kinds of videos. There's loads of resources that you can download to learn more um, and watch our videos, which will tell you lots more about the kind of picture of trafficking in Northern Ireland, what that looks like. Um, and then just across social media, it's at Mel Wiggins on everything or at Freedom Acts on everything as well. Great. That is absolutely awesome. And I'll include all of this, all the links and stuff in the show notes and some links for some of the stuff that we've talked about and even some of the stuff we haven't talked about. So thanks so much, Mel. Thank you so much, Johnny. Appreciate it.